Hello, and welcome to another episode of South Asian Stories, where we hear from South Asians around the world and uncover their identities, successes, failures, and most importantly, stories. I'm your host, Samir Desai. In this episode, I chat with Melanie Maharachi. Melanie is a prolific mechanical, robotics, and rocket engineer. She came to the U.S. with her husband and two young children from Sri Lanka and built her career completely from scratch after graduating from UCLA with a degree in mechanical engineering. Melanie has worked at SpaceX, Boeing, and NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory on the Mars Rover 2020 mission. At SpaceX, Melanie worked very closely with the one and only Elon Musk on the Merlin engine design team for the Falcon 9 rocket. Influenced by her own personal and professional experience, in 2015 she founded a nonprofit, I STEM Without Borders, to empower young women in STEM careers. So in this conversation, we discuss what working with Elon Musk was really like at SpaceX, breaking barriers and overcoming adversity in her early life in Sri Lanka, as well as the importance of asking for what you want and learning how to negotiate. Melanie's stories are incredibly inspiring, open, and honest. It's one of my favorite interviews to date. Melanie, welcome to South Asian Stories. Oh, thank you for having me, Samir. It's my pleasure. We are so pumped to have you. It has been an honor to to read your story. I first got um, you know, uh nose it despite it because everyone started posting that Refinery 29 story. Okay. And, and I read it and I was just couldn't believe how amazing you know, your work has been, and, and I was just so inspired um, for everyone listening. Melanie has had a wealth of experience that I'm sure we're going to touch into. Um, but I'd love to just start completely at the beginning, Melanie. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and, and what your childhood was like growing up? Okay. So um, I was born and raised in Sri Lanka. Um, and, you know, most of my life, I, you know, pretty much lived in Sri Lanka. And, um, yeah, I kind of lived through the Civil War, uh, you know, children who kind of grew up in 80s, 90s. Um, you know, you cannot escape the Civil War and the impact of it. Um, and I have two brothers. I'm the only daughter. Um, yeah, so, and um, I... Um, you know, I didn't. I, I studied only up to my A levels, my high school in Sri Lanka. So I can touch, you know, my career path and my education later. Um, but <clears throat> then, in kind of due to cultural, um, what do you call pressure, you know, I got married, and um, I have uh, two children now. They are twenty-one and nineteen. Wow. They are pretty old. Um, we came to um, United States 15 years ago, um, and basically I came for it, the education of my children here. So I have had the pleasure of best of both worlds as an immigrant. Um, you know, I always see that as an advantage. Uh, you know, uh, you get the best of both worlds being an Asian and right. also living in America. So, um, yeah, so that's sort of my background. When I came here, only I studied, um, you know, further. I went to university. Uh, but my um, childhood, um, childhood is very interesting uh, because I'm on the only daughter um, and that I right. come from a mixed um, uh, mix race family where actually the, the civil war was about. 
you know, it was, uh, you know, ethnic war. Actually, we call it civil war, but it's actually ethnic war between Sinhalese and the Tamil. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm, I'm now only I'm openly talking about, you know, my mixed race background because earlier it was dangerous for somebody, you know, you know, living in Sri Lanka who has a mixed race. Sure. Because, uh, you know, uh, when you're mixed race, my dad is Tamil and my mom is Sinhala. So you cannot live in North because, you know, your mom is Sinhala and she wouldn't be able to survive. And you, you cannot live in South because your dad is Tamil and that, you know, there is kind of pushback. Wow. So, yeah. So for the longest time, we lived in South. We pretty, I mean, pretty much we lived in South. But our identity, you know, who we are was hidden. And my parents' family... They kind of excel, both families excel my mom and dad because they got married, mixed race. Um, so my parents decided to raise us in South, um, but our neighbors, you know, very, you know, except close friends, neighbors or, you know, our communities didn't know we are mixed race. So we were raised singular uh, for safety. Um, so if you talk about somebody who kind of, got affected socially and even education, you know, career paths uh, due to this civil war. I'm one of those people who got, like, affected being mixed race. Uh, sure. But, yeah, but but my childhood experience kind of shaped me who I am today, you know, the adversities that and how you overcome those, you know, unforeseeable, you know, situations kind of make you very strong. So I don't see that as a disadvantage. I see it as a very positive, um, you know, influence of living, you know, during the civil war. Yeah, that is an incredible story. And I'd love to touch a little bit more on that, Melanie. You felt that um, that, that hidden identity and, and it's something that, you know, you you was an integral part of your life. Did that mentality drive through you through your whole life like were you always interested in engineering and 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 when i read the article it sounded like your parents were pushing you to do uh, a different career path than medicine but you were also interested in engineering can you talk a little bit about that okay so yeah so when you are a little bit smart um um, in your family, your parents, you know, it's our culture. There's nothing wrong with it. Your parents <laughs> kind of steer you sure. to, you know, what, what you should be studying. And it's a good thing because parents know about their children a lot. But I think in my culture at that time, it was like you, parents were 100 percent, you know, affected how you choose your career path. So um, for me, um, I I was very good in mathematics and statistics and you know sciences and and my teachers knew that. Uh, but when you're a girl in our culture and you're very smart in your studies, you are expected to become a medical doctor. It's mm-hmm. I don't know uh, whether it's it's applicable anywhere else, but in Sri Lanka in 80s 90s it was it was like strongly believe it was a very uh, decent prestigious. Um, 
career. If a woman is a career, um, either you become a nurse or uh, a teacher or a medical doctor. So because I was, you know, good in my studies, my parents kind of steered me, you know, towards the medical, you know, profession. But also the other reason is, we lived, we have only one engineering university in um, Sri Lanka. We live like five minutes from that engineering university. So we had like a lot of interaction with, you know, students who go in and out from that university. 90% that time, you know, growing up around that university, I see 90% of the students were guys who, you know, studied at the uh, engineering university. And it was very kind of a rough environment. Mm. And, um, so my my mom especially said, you know, look, you're you're this very soft girl. You would <laughs> never survive a day in that, you know, in those walls. You would not, right? And and um, so um, she was afraid that I would choose engineering. And the other reason she steered me or my parents steered me away from engineering is so we are a mixed race, right? right. And then engineering is not a um, known profession for a woman at the time a girl Mm -hmm. so um, um, my mom said you know if you choose engineering or technology sciences in that side and it's going to have more eyes on our family right because it's 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 a profession that society does not like approve of Uh, so now you're going to get more attention to our family trying to study engineering so i was completely kind of from the cultural perspective and then from you know our ethnic background a mixed background kind of kept me away from studying engineering got it so then um you moved to the u.s Mm -hmm. um, with your whole family and you started your engineering degree at ucla what was that like was that um was that tough were you nervous were you anxious about that yeah so um so when i uh, so I had to tell why I moved, you know, from Sri Lanka. So when my son was born, you know, he's the oldest. And I thought, oh, okay. And he, I realized he was very smart. And I didn't think, uh, you know, anything bad about he growing up in Sri Lanka, although the civil war was still in existence in, you know, 1997. But when my daughter was born, it kind of hit me that, oh, my God, my my girl is going to go through the same life cycle and and that, you know, the whole family. Uh, it's just not us. You know, it's our culture. The, uh, the grandparents and the aunts and uncles and cousins have a huge influence on your decisions, right? Your, your career and life um, in general. So I realized my daughter is going to go through the same cycle that I went through. And I, I don't want her to end up like me, just a housewife. So that's where I made the decision, okay, I'm going to go uh, give the equal opportunity for both my daughter and son. So that was the reason I, you know, moved to Sri Lanka, um, uh, U.S. So, <laughs> so when I moved to U.S., um, I realized the window of, of opportunity opened again for me, right? This is a country where if you want, you can have it. You can get it. If you work sure. hard, you can get it. Right. This is a country that with the opportunities. So I come from a place where there, there are a lot of cultural, you know, uh, effect on your decisions and your, you know, personal decisions. But when you come to America, you know, you are free to do whatever you want 
within your limits, within your capabilities and the opportunities there. So the window of opportunity opened for me. And um, so when I, you know, I applied to UCLA and that, you know, I mean, I didn't have any ACT, SAT scores. And I just like blindly did things um, and that I made sure that they worked, like how I got in. I, I was just thinking even like after 15 years, like, what was I thinking? Like, <laughs> like sometimes less you know kind of makes you kind of go for it, right? right? right. Sometimes more you know, like the more the information holds you back. Yeah, you don't uh, know enough to be scared. You're just like, I'm yeah, just going to do it. Exactly. Yeah. So I thought, what am I going to lose? Nothing, right? You know, I'll, I'll still continue to be a good mom, right? Uh, but nothing for me to lose. So I just like went for it. And I applied to UCLA and I got in. Um, and I graduated within, you know, four and a half years. Um, you know, a lot of people ask, like, when you have a commute of two, two and a half hours a day, and then you have two young kids, and you are a mother, and your husband is the only, you know, a breadwinner. Uh, how can you go to school full time and finish within four and a half years? I thought, every, honestly, Samir, I really thought everybody finished in four years. And that's what I aim for. <laughs> and now I know there are people in colleges for six years, sometimes seven. <laughs> I didn't know at that time. Um, so, yes, yeah, so my, my kind of ignorance uh, played a good side for me right at the beginning. Um, I didn't have many people say, telling me, no, you cannot do it. You shouldn't do it. I just did it. Yeah. Yeah. You just went and, and, and got it done. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Thank and you. So once you finished your studies at UCLA, mm -hmm. how did you get your start at SpaceX? Okay. Um, so I, when I graduated in 2009, it was the height of the recession. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. It was really, and, and I was very naive, right? I thought, okay, I am graduating from a very good uh, technical university. I will be having like lines of jobs that I will be selected, you know, how naive and, you know, um, how naive I, I was, right? That's what I thought. You know, I'm a good engineer. I'm graduating from UCLA. I will have three, four jobs lined up, which I had, right? But due to downsizing, due to, you know, um, you know the recession, uh, some, two of those jobs kind of dropped, um, you know, between cracks. But also the other jobs that I was competing, uh, you know, my peers, and not just UCLA peers, anybody in that, you know, during that time who graduated, they had internship experience, right? For me, I couldn't do an internship because I was spending time with my children during summer. Um, I didn't have, we didn't have kind of finances to put them in daycares and, you know, um, and then send them to, uh, you know, uh, programs, summer programs. So I kind of stayed with them, did my part as a mom. And I was hoping that I would get a job when I have an engineering degree. And that's was very naive person of me, you know, thinking for four years, didn't do internship. So when I graduated, I didn't have a job. Uh, and that um, July went August, so I graduated in June uh, 2009, and um, you know my mentality was so down, and I was upset. Sure. Um, I I started doubting like the system, right? All this time I was like had so much high hope of system and me having a good career. Yeah. So I found myself, 
you know, I, I'm, me, I'm very modest and very open. So I'm, I'm, these stories I have told many, many times, so I'm not ashamed to say that. Because sometimes when you graduate with, you know, right GPA, right degree, sometimes you don't have a job, but that's not the end of the world. That's the message I want to pass to the listeners. Um, so I didn't have a job. And I found myself, you know, in career fairs, diversity career fairs, various career fairs, uh, and that I found myself in internship career fair, right? So I thought, okay, at least I am lacking internship experience. Let me just go and become an intern and get my experience and then get a job. That's smart. So, yeah, so I, I went to this internship, you know, career fair, and that everybody, one after the other, one after the other, you know, rejected me saying, you cannot be an intern when you have a full degree, right? So I said, you know, I'll be a super intern. Right. And, you know, I, I come with a full degree. I have this wealth of knowledge, like what stops you. Right. But, you know, there are like certain protocol that all these companies have to follow. So one hiring manager, oh my good luck, uh, you know, um, one hiring manager who was at that career fair um, with uh, his friend recruiter. Um, he said, you know what, go sign up for some program online. I don't care. Right then you are qualified as an intern because you're in a you know educational program so i sign up for a ucla online master's program second day itself and that week after i got qualified to become an intern at l3 so i started my internship at l3 uh, communication as a full degree holder uh, that was the first time they hired a f intern with a full degree holder. So that's how I started my career. But I love that ingenuity, Melanie. You know, what I'm hearing over and over again is you hear a barrier and you said, yeah. you know what? I don't, I don't, like, what is my way around this? There has yeah. got to be a way. And I love that, that yeah. courage and just that resourcefulness to say, hey, I can do this. Yes. And um, yeah. that's, a, that's just an amazing story to hear. Thank you. Thank you. So, I mean, when I was at um, L3, uh, I was there for like a month. Then I realized, okay, my window of opportunity again is open uh, to get me a good job. So I went and applied, put my resume in these job banks. And, you know, one was SpaceX. And, um, yeah, so the SpaceX, um, I didn't ever think that I would ever get a call from SpaceX. But I blindly put my resume very happily in all those, you know, um, job banks. And um, SpaceX recruiter called me and uh, said, you know, and he interviewed me over the phone. And um, so that's, you know, I mean, from the article, you can see how you I got my job. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, my competitors were like oh, Stanford, MIT, all these very smart, you know, um, uh, people who applied to, you know, similar jobs at SpaceX. And that there I was going with like a one month or two months uh, internship experience. Yeah. So, uh, so then again, I had to stand up, right? How do I stand out with, with lacking my internship experience? How do I make it up? Like, how do I uh, stand myself um, out of this, you know, very smart people? So I realized, you know, Elon, Elon so I was one of the early SpaceXers. So Elon tends to come for those interviews. We were asked to make a presentation. And so I, I researched about Elon. I, I stopped thinking about what I lack. And I thought, okay, how am I going to kind of kill this presentation, right? Mm -hmm. And um, and then I realized he ha he's a man of many failures. 
right so man who uh, you know somebody who has failed multiple times and now trying to be successful they know what it takes to be failed and talking about a failure right not everybody can easily talk about failure mm-hmm. and then this project was uh, we we were asked to make a presentation of a, any project uh, that you had the impact of. so i presented my you know um, ucla senior project that you know our whole team failed uh, knowing that i can get attention of elon so elon um, at the end he just like very sarcastically said you know this is a rock star company the you know we, we hire only rock stars and you just you know presented a fail project uh, oh, like, elon what? asked you that question yeah wow. so he said like you know i don't know this is like a, so he kind of was sarcastic i knew that he's like how do you expect us to like even move forward you just you know presented something that failed and you know what's the thinking behind it but you think you learn how do you make the changes so i was ready for all those questions i knew it's going to come from somebody how do you make it like how do you do it differently sure, why sure. why what the failure taught you so so i kind of explain you know what the failure taught and i told him this particular failure will stick in my head and in my in me for the rest of my life it's it's a it's it's a very slap it's a big slap for my ego because our team was like a good team we had um but our team we had 13 tier teams i told him our team is the only team who had two girls so there were 50% women in our team so we were we were like looked at as okay the girls fail the project kind of attitude so uh, it was a big um, ego wow. slap for me uh, as a student mm-hmm. so i told him you know elan um i will because this happened very early on in my career i make sure that this will never ever happen again in my career so are you not happy that some you are going to hire somebody you will hire somebody who has failed before so that you are not going to be at that cost so he started laughing um and that you know the conversation was like uh, you know very smooth afterwards and that when i went home i had my you know job buffer in my email like the same day melody how uh, did you how did you feel about that that must have been <laughs> like what was going through your head it was unreal i really thought okay i did my best and i thought okay this was a risk but uh, but um i did not think you know if even if i get a job buffer it will be the same day job buffer uh, i thought there'll be like so many interviews followed and that you know somebody in that team there were about like 13 14 people including my department vp and my team um so somebody would just like pick out what i'm trying to say and my strengths and just give me a chance that's what i was hoping for but i didn't think it was the same day so i was like very happy you know this like mature women jumping up and down never happens like it happened to me that <laughs> i bet i bet just to think of how far you came and just seeing that in your inbox was just got to be i imagine a huge source of validation that said hey I can do this. Like yeah. I, I, yeah. out of all the obstacles I had, I made it to this point. And not many people get this chance, let alone with yeah. my background. That's just Yeah. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah, what a story. and then I had, to, I had to I had to emphasize one point too, right? Uh, another point. Uh, this was a job mainly electrical engineering, but you, you they needed mechanical background, uh, but it's mainly you had to understand a lot of electrical side of it, right? And I was just a pure mechanical engineer. And, um, you know, I, I, I believe it was the VP. He asked me, so how do you feel about this job? Because you don't have electrical background, you have mechanical background. And I'll tell you why, you know, I was an electrical major for like first year. And then I switched my major to mechanical engineering. Uh, two things, because um, during labs, you know, I was very afraid to get electrocuted. Um, <laughs> growing up, we had a we had a broken iron, and we had uniforms, and I ironed my brothers and my uniform, and pretty much almost every day I got electrocuted, like a little, like a you know spark shock. So I was afraid of the electrical engineering, so I kind of switched to mechanical. Because of that, I didn't want to do more labs with, you know, electricity around. And when I was asked, like, how do you feel about doing a more electrical job as a mechanical engineer? Like, oh, sure. You know, no problem. I, you know, I, I slayed all my, you know, um, electrical classes that we had to take classes. So I just kind of sold myself, although I was dead scared of sure. this job. Right. So that's how you do it. Like, it's just like you shouldn't. Um, your your personal fears should not stop you from becoming you know who you are and it's you know i always tell people like you are the barrier like you are the one who is always doubting and you know you know say you're a woman you're a minority you don't know this and that we we find a lot of reasons not to do things and that you know you it shouldn't be the case yeah that that is such amazing advice. And I think more people need to hear that because, you know, what I, what I think about it too, Melanie, is the mental barriers you put on yourself that you said, why I don't think I'm good on this, where the true question and what you did so beautifully is why should I be here? Why should I be at the table? And why I am just as qualified as everyone else here. I should have a chance to, to be at the big table at these big jobs that a lot of people are. That's, that's super. Um, Tell us Melanie a little bit about, what was it like working the early days of SpaceX? What was it like working on, on the Dragon? Because I'm sure everyone follows SpaceX and sees the amazing um, what they do. What yeah. they do, but more, more, many people don't know what it's like to work and work exactly. on these things in the background. Okay, so um, I have to you know, first um, tell you this. You know, we, we have I think that up to now. Today, there are about 7,000 SpaceXers who have worked and who have left the companies, but all around about like 7,000 people. And, um, you know, wherever I go, people just like, you know, you ask me, uh, people are very interested in how it's like working at SpaceX. I am one of those people who would tell all great things that SpaceX has done to me early on in my career. Right. Uh, but um, when I joined SpaceX in 2020, it was st- still considered a startup and it was less than thousand people. Mm-hmm. So it was very small. It was a small family kind of a, you know, um, environment, which I really liked. Uh, at the same time, uh, when I joined SpaceX, Elon didn't even have a single successful launch. Right. When I three months after I joined, 
he had his first successful rocket launch. So the the success started soon after I. I'm not responsible. Definitely, <laughs> you were the reason. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm, you know, I'm not responsible. But I'm just saying it took him from 2002, I believe, to up to 2008 years. Like so much of research and development, trial and error, sure, and sure. so many rocket, you know, few rocket blows. Um, but his, you know, the company, you know, saw the like the, the public saw. Uh, kind of realized, looked at SpaceX around 2009-2010 when company was like doing a little, you know, started doing better. So that's the time I um, work, started uh, working there. And then I really liked, uh, so I never knew how it's like to work in a startup. And people ask me this, like, how is it like working in startup? So the startup culture is very fast. Uh, you wear so many hats. And, you know, your, you, your uh, title and job description doesn't define what you do during the day. Um, so you have to kind of wear multiple hats, make uh, you're responsible. You know, th within three months, I become became the responsible engineer for rocket engine um, electrical cables. So it was just like my heart was pounding. I wanted to run and come home. Like it was such a huge uh, responsibility. Yeah. But, but when you're working in a startup, you, you take huge responsibilities very early on in your career, uh, sometimes without proper training, like, you know, proper uh, training that traditional companies offer you. Sure. Uh, but at the same time, uh, the caveat for working in a startup is that they have funding like you know especially at spacex uh, i didn't have to sit and write proposals after proposals to get funding for my any of the tests that i was doing right any of the new designs that i was developing it was just approved like it i just could go and order parts from my inventory and that just like test it and that incorporate that to a, a new design so that that kind of environment is very good for a new engineer right sure. because you it's like a kid in a candy store you, <laughs> you just have to think crazy and that you know people are going to buy that craziness from you right yeah. so um i think so most of my colleagues were very smart people who were around me were very smart very helpful um i never one thing also in the startup especially at spacex what i realized was i never felt that i am a woman like you know i it just everybody were treated equally like feel like it was a very young culture i was one of the oldest not oldest i was one of the older people uh, but it it was a very young culture and it was fun so yeah so spacex or any startup culture the the trade off is your personal time right mm -hmm. uh, so it's not an 8 to 5 job so you're responsible your testing is happening overnight sometimes and you are responsible to you know reply your emails 3 in the morning right or take your car and go to your test site or not test site you know the office if they if you are needed there so my phone was under my pillow every night oh, and yeah. when it's yeah it was ding and i three in the morning i open the email i go to my desk and i start you know writing emails like so because there were tests happening in texas and there's a launch site in you know florida so 
and it was a 24-hour kind of work environment at SpaceX. So, um, so that was the trade-off. Like I spent a lot of my Thanksgiving, you know, at work. We had launches during Thanksgiving, during Christmas. You know, why people ask like, why Elon likes to launch in during Thanksgiving, Christmas? That's because any other traditional company don't work during that time. Yeah, so the launch launch pad is free during that time. <laughs> sure, right? that makes Smart. sense. Yeah, but but he provided you know the 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 turkey and the family you know <laughs> the, the entertainment like you name it like you get sucked into that kind of environment when you don't even realize, and then after four or five years you realize so oh my god like where do I have time for myself and my family sure. right. So, sure. um, so yeah, but then I became such a good engineer, uh, you know, a better person, better professional because of my experience at SpaceX. So I, I always count most of my success to my early, you know, uh, career at uh, SpaceX. Yeah, because they basically they said, hey, Melanie, we'll throw you into the deep end, sink or swim. Yeah. Here's a massive amount of responsibility. Yes. We want you to take over. So. Yeah. Talk to us about how you dealt with that. Did you um, just learn on the job? Did you uh, query your colleagues? Like, what did you do to say, "Hey, I didn't, I don't know how to do this"? How did you figure yeah. it out? Okay, so early on, you know, that's my uh, one thing. When I want to talk about my early career, I have made mistakes, right? Uh, one mistake was that I did not want to tell people I don't know. Right. Somehow I figure it and I do it. Right. So uh, I'll tell you one experience. Uh, sometimes people like to they relate to stories. Early on in my career, um, I was um, working on the um, cargo dragon and that I had to design the electrical, um, the light system for the cargo. And uh, I take I take it back. I had to design the electrical system in the pressure section. So I was single-handedly doing that. And that this was the very first Dragon to International Space Station. So there was nothing in the past for us to take. There's no experienced people who have been there. It's just we are doing it. And uh, so uh, when we were assembling, you know, some of the stuff in our Dragon in our clean room, um, I bumped into one of the astronauts, ex-astronauts who work at SpaceX. Uh, I forgot his name. I'm sorry. I, I might remember his name. Um, so I was like, oh, really, how things are going? And he asked me, so where did you put the light switch? You have to understand when we dive into the capsule, we, when we go into the capsule, we just somersault. He told me how they somersault into the capsule, Right. They just don't just go in. So when you somersault, you have to make sure uh, that the cargo light switch should be just there when they hold on to the railing and that it shouldn't be in the way of their somersault. And then I realized, oh, shoot, I completely forgot the light system. You know, I mm -hmm. we were so busy, you know, doing all the electrical path for this and I forgot really the light system. Right. So I then I thought, OK, without even telling my boss, I went and went into um, the dragon clean room. And this was between the two ships. 
right? The the morning shift and the afternoon shift where the um, you know technicians were working. The between so we if we ever have to work on you know clean room, we have to be in their you know manif- not manifest you know in their schedule roster. Mm-hmm. So I did not schedule. Obviously, nobody is going to cut their time and give it to me. And I thought the best time would be to go between the two. Right. The <laughs> lunch <laughs> shift. <laughs> yeah. And then, so that I can just like look into where I can just do that. I knew it will take only like 15, 20 minutes. So um, I just like went in between the two shifts and that nobody knew I was in the uh, clean room. They shut everything down and they started hauling some thrusters, which is kind of dangerous for anybody else to be around there. And then um, then they realized there's somebody in the dragon and it became um, like a rescue mission. <laughs> because <laughs> So the whole company, it was like a big glass door where the dragon is sitting and it became a huge rescue mission to take me out of the danger. So, um, so everybody knew how stupid I was, and this was very early on in my career. And it's something that I learned: like if you make a mistake, it's okay you make a mistake. Right. But you need to ask people. You need to have a team, you know, really helping you. Like go ask for help when you don't know. Don't try to fix things on your own because you're going to put yourself in the danger. Um, so yeah. So asking around came my humility. You know, I ate so many slices of my humble pie <laughs> over the years at SpaceX. Um, I became very humble. And I it's not like I go around saying I don't know. When I'm not sure, I would try to find somebody who knows better than me and discuss, at least have a five-minute chat before I embark on something. And right. it has made a huge difference as an engineer. Right. Now, that is a, 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 a super point because <clears throat> asking for help when you grow up, it's it's like it's not admitting weakness. It's showing yeah. your maturity just yes. as you you know realize in, in your situation that, hey, it's okay to ask for help because yeah. everyone is on, in this together. And I, I love I love that, uh, that that takeaway. That's that's wonderful. Okay. I, I would love and this is more of a, a personal question on my end. There has okay. been a ton of media inquiries into Elon and his life and his, um, you know, his ups and downs and lefts and rights. Okay. Can you talk to us, Melanie, about your experience working with Elon as your manager, ultimate manager? And did okay. you get to know Elon as the person versus Elon as the, you know, caricature that he is sometimes in the media? Um, so yeah, I, sometimes what I see in the media, especially now, it surprised me, Samir. Right. Um, the Elon Musk that I knew at that time is a very um, caring man, but he's he's um, he's not so he's not emotionally very open person like he I he I felt like he lacked empathy at the beginning. But that his that's his personality. You know, when you are a very, you know, ambitious entrepreneur, you know, you cannot I feel like, you know, you. you empathy part is sometimes missing at least they they shield themselves from that empathy um that's what i see but i have sat with him at many meetings you know i was working on the grass supper like vertical you know the vertical landing uh, mission very early on uh, we call it grass supper so um he didn't want uh, this particular mission to be 
a public thing, right? The, he didn't want NASA to know about it. He said, let's uh, figure it out. Let's just design it and then present it to NASA. So it was like a very, um, um, it's a project that a few engineers, about 15, 20 engineers were part of. So he were, he wanted to know like every second week what's going on. And so I had the pleasure of kind of interacting very closely with him during that project. Um, I, uh, he is a very smart person. Um, you know, by what I mean is like, no, he knows everything about a rocket, the rocket, every little detail about the rocket. He knows every little detail about the dragon. And I, because I often wondered, like, how come? Like, is he super genius? Is he that <laughs> right? So, you know, I'm just trying to kind of um, get some of his um, kind of knowledge and, and way of you know leadership right you know how he leads things i'm kind of learn try to kind of so i was very curious and one thing i noticed was that every every um situation every problem he breaks it down to uh, you know levels uh, or steps that he could understand so everything he th- thought was in steps Right. So I thought it's a very smart way to learn things by just breaking it on your own to small steps that you can learn. Right. So but he was a very impatient person. Right. And I I appreciate his quality because, you know, he was his company was growing rapidly. So there was no time to relax and kind of, oh, I'll give you the answer in four days kind of thing. Right. Um, so he needed when he asked, he needed answers very quickly. And I remember one time he asked me something I was not prepared for and that I stumbled and he realized I was BSing. He chased me out of the room. Right. And and I was very upset and that, I, you know, my boss came and said, oh, you know, forget it. You know, he's not going to remember that he, you, you, he even chased you. Sure enough, like in the evening, he met me at the hallway and it's like, hey, man, how are you? And just like, he just left. So he thought, <laughs> Short he thought, memory span. <laughs> ah, so I, that's a good thing, right? You know, nothing is, you know, in professional world, something I learned from him is nothing is personal. Like there's nothing that was personal to him that he scolded me. So um, I, I that I kind of, you know, learned from him is just like, Work is work. Yeah, I don't take things personal. So that's where I, you know, kind of grew my thick skin. Uh, just associating around him, uh, knowing how he does business, how knowing how he thinks, uh, knowing the type of questions he asks, and how his you can see how his wheels are turning in him when he's at meetings. Like he's very attentive. Um, so um, yeah. So and he. He, he's a very, you know, he has, you know, four children, I believe, like four sons. You know, he's a good father. He sometimes take around his sons and explaining things. And I, you know, he's a good man. And and he realized that I have young kids. Um, and he, so he, he had a lot of empathy for people who have, you know, challenges. So the Elon that I knew at the time was a, he was and still is a good man. Mm-hmm. It just I think that when the big business big you know business becomes so big and yeah. that you know um, sometimes you get caught in situations and you know people are always looking 
that one little black mark to talk about. Right. But um, yeah, he's he's really a visionary. He's a good businessman, a good entrepreneur, and you know he's a good boss. That's great. That's that's really cool insight for, for people who don't know the, the the real Elon. So thank you, Melanie. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about what happened after SpaceX. You know, you talked about you grew a ton as an engineer, um, okay. but the work life balance and the you know the other parts of your life, you realized after four years was um, something that you needed to, to work on. So what did you do after SpaceX? Yeah, so um, I left SpaceX. Um, because it was no longer, uh, you know, the company that I joined. Uh, it was no longer, um, you know, it was a small company that, you know, your uh, small effort was recognized. All of a sudden, company grew exponentially. And then all of a sudden, there were 5,000 people. And even the HR couldn't handle, like, the problems. And we didn't have processes set up. But it's just, like, a lot of tribal knowledge. Um, so... Uh, as an early SpaceX, I felt like, you know, these young kids come out of college, they are willing to kind of stay there for 24 hours and the whole weekend. And some of these, some some of the, you know, early, old SpaceX is like myself, were expected to come to work Saturday, Sunday, work till like eight, nine o'clock. And we were given all meals and it was fantastic, all that. But some of us had lives and that I realized <laughs> I realize, and you know, especially when your husband, when your children start complaining and they are no longer glorifying mom, mom's like job, that's the time that you need to get out, right? And my husband started, you know, complaining a little bit. My children started complaining. Uh, then I realized, okay, now it's out of balance. I need to go to a more traditional company and kind of, you know, take a step back. So that's when, you know, I decided to move uh, out of SpaceX. And I took about six months off between, you know. Uh, to regain your sanity? <laughs> yeah, and then visit my parents. I haven't seen them in three years. Sure. Uh, and, and, you know, simple things. I didn't even know what time my daughter's school started um, <laughs> or, or ended, not started, ended. And, you know, the next day after I left SpaceX, I told my husband, oh, hey, I'm going to go and pick up my daughter. And then I text him and ask him, what time Shinara's school is over? I did not know. Yeah. So um, so those little things kind of, um, it just slipped out of my hand. And as a mother, I'm not very proud of it. Um, but um, yeah, so it took me about a good six months to kind of, you know, really patch up with my parents and just like be around my kids and kind of get to know the daily routine when I'm away. Um, and then I join Boeing. Yeah. And I love, Melin, that you brought that up because so many um, moms especially have to deal with this, right? The the, yeah. the the life and the art of balance, you know, when you have such a successful career and yeah. so, and you're doing so well and you're loving the job but then you always think about this is the life behind me that i have to support and uh, my kids and my husband exactly. and my family and my parents i think that's a very tough thing that people constantly struggle with and it sounds like you made decisions based on how do i balance both of that so i think that's exactly. really yeah. cool that you know you're open and you 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 found a way to to make that decision 
Yeah. Um, so tell me about your time um, after uh, you know SpaceX as, at Boeing, and then you know I, I understand you joined yeah. NASA. Can you talk a little bit about that time? Okay. Yeah. Um, so um, I just wanted to kind of have uh, a kind of a you know work in a traditional company and a you know aircraft company. I call myself an aerospace engineer, and then you know I have not worked on aircrafts. You know that's <laughs> not cool. Right. And I thought, okay, let me go and work on some aircrafts. And so I joined, um, you know, Boeing Commercial. Um, but the thing is, company was uh, really traditional in the sense it is an old company, right? Yeah. So they have kind of figured out all their processes, the engineering, but also it's a very responsible company. Yeah, because of that, things happen very slow. Right. So the things that I could do in three days, I was given three weeks and I was just like, then I go and hand over my work. I get more work. And then my colleagues got upset with me. Right. And it's like, Melanie, you can't do that. You're just making, you know, all of us bad. So then I realized, like, I, you know, what am I? I, I can be 24 hours busy. But I cannot not do work and just like do nothing. Yeah. It's just living hell for me. The pace was much, much slower than SpaceX. Yeah, yeah, it was very slow. And, you know, I mean, so, I, you know, I don't want to, you know, it's a company that I don't want to kind of tell anything bad. It's it's how it has, I think, because of the way they do business, it has to be that slow because you cannot rush into changes, making changes and engineering. Um, at SpaceX, you know, I designed something in, you know, six, five, six months. It's oh, we are launching that already. Right. And and at Boeing or traditional companies, uh, you know, it doesn't happen. Some people say like in Northrop Grumman, like it takes about 10 years, whatever they work to go to space. It takes 10 years. Hmm. So traditional companies they take it slow also they it minimize the failures right the human errors so i understand why it needed to be that slow but yeah, that was like a flipping a switch for me uh, i was so used to very fast pace um environment and that you know at boeing and it was um i i believe it was like 72 miles from my house so i i drove about 140 miles a day wow. uh, for that job and um so for me and then i it was too slow and and it was too far and then i thought okay what's my mission then i i always circle back to as an engineer what what was the reason i am an engineer so the reason i am in aerospace industry it's because i have this huge concern for um you know, our environment, our, you know, global warming and, you know, what's ha happened to us and, you know, whether we are doing okay. So I wanted, when I was graduating, I wanted one day to be in the Mars mission. So, you know, we can go and just like see what happened to Mars or any other places and that, you know, bring those lessons to make ourselves better, right? So that's, I, I then I take a, took a step back and it's like, why am I at aerospace industry right and uh, no i'm not i was not going to build you know design airplanes i wanted to be in mars mission so i put my resume in their job bank nasa jpl and then i was contacted um uh, to a position to design the mars rover electrical system and um so uh, actually not mars rover i was contacted to work in the electrical you know uh, division 
um, small spacecraft. Uh, then I told, you know, my hiring manager, okay, I'll join. It was also a pay cut because it's a government entity, mm-hmm. uh, but I want to work on the Mars program. So I, I kind of negotiated what I wanted to do. Uh, and that my, you know, hiring manager said, okay, fine. You know, that's fair enough. Um, so that's how I got into um, NASA JPL. And um, so, yeah, so my that was the transition. And it is a mix between, so the Mars mission, the Mars rover 2020 program was a mixture between a traditional and a startup. So it was like a good balance for mm-hmm. me. Wow. And I'd love just the variety of experience. Like you went from a fast growing startup like like SpaceX to yeah. a very slow moving but blue chip company like Boeing. And then you, yeah. you ended up at the JPL NASA working on the Mars 2020. Just yeah. the complexity of all those experiences just are just amazing and one of the things i want to uh, underscore which is which you which i love melanie is you asked for what you wanted exactly and said hey i'm interested in this in this mars mission how can i get there and that i think is a point that a lot many people realize is like if you want something you have to ask for it because the worst they can say is no but you need to ask for what you need yeah, and then you work around it, right? Yeah. So a lot of women, you know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a huge like, you know, people say, you know, you got to be a feminist. Like, I, I grew up in a very traditional and, uh, you know, a culture, and then now I'm in United States, so I have the best of both worlds. I, I, you know, I mean, I am a feminist, but not like a huge feminist. Like, oh, women are, women are like the greatest, and we have. It's not like that. We have our own strengths. We have weaknesses. One thing we see weaknesses is women don't ask we we like to complain about things that we never asked right Mm -hmm. so how can you complain about things that you never asked so uh, you know my advice to a lot of women is just like you know if you want something ask at least negotiate learn how to negotiate there are so many you know videos out there especially Harvard Business School has put out how to negotiate your salaries you need to negotiate you tell what you're worth don't be shy about it so mm-hmm. I mean I realized by the time I came to JPL I have you know grown much away from that shyness of my you know Sri Lankan personality <laughs> and that <laughs> that yeah I thought okay I'm going to ask like worst thing he would say is no and then I would say, okay, then give me the job and I'll make sure that I somehow go into the mass program. And because I'm a very charming person, I know somehow I got, I get my way around. Yeah. So, you know, so, you know, focus on your strengths, but don't be afraid to ask. That's amazing. That's amazing piece of, of, of advice. Um, I want to touch a little bit about your work now of what you're doing currently with uh, iSTEM Without Borders, your nonprofit. Uh-huh. Can you talk a little bit about the mission and the, and the work you're doing and, and why you're so passionate about it? Okay. So, 25, I mean, I have been, um, you know, encouraging STEM communities and getting more young girls and boys into the STEM community for a long time. And uh, 2015, when I joined NASA JPL, you know, NASA JPL is like wealth of resources. It's just, it just mind-blowing how much of resources they put out um, to the communities. And uh, it's just, you know, the, the 
teachers, we can bring the teachers, give them tools, and we can bring students from, you know, any school you want. And that just sometimes when you show people the life beyond their little world, what they can do in the space world, it's, it's very empowering. Right. And so when I joined JPL, I realized they give all these, you know, um, little Mars rovers to take it to schools. They give all this. They train you to become speakers um, and they go. You go and, you know, you know, help them with competitions and robotic classes and, you know, uh, robotics, uh, you know, their little competitions. So uh, only thing NASA doesn't do is paying for your expenses. They give all the resources. They don't give time out, uh, like not time out. They don't give time away from work, uh, and they don't pay for your expenses. So, uh, and I realize uh, it's important also for me to empower these young men and women, especially young girls. So, I, I had to open. I open a nonprofit uh, just to cover my expenses of me going into places. That was my like the simple goal for my nonprofit. Um, so, but once I started, you know, going out through my nonprofit and you know just you know um, empowering these young women, um, a lot of things flash back to me about my own career and you know the roadblocks and you know how our culture, the STEM community whether they are even geared to, you know, retain people like our, myself. And, um, I, you know, over the years of become, being an engineer uh, and working on very um, crucial, uh, cutting-edge projects, uh, one thing I have realized, whenever I had to put together a team, I made sure my team is highly diverse, mm-hmm. not just women and men, it's just minorities and all kinds of, you know, educational level, right? Uh, because I realized uh, when your team is rich in diversity of thoughts, you put out, you know, cutting edge technology, you put out projects or products that are very competitive, very unique. Right. Um, sadly, aerospace industry is still a boys club. Um, I don't want to kind of kind of segregate people, but it's just all white men. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is when uh, same similar people are in teams, you know, your output becomes similar. It's the same. And then we are in this world competition, you know, to be, you know, the superpowers of this technology. <laughs> You have to be diverse. Your teams have to be diverse. So my reason for me to kind of take a full head on on my, uh, you know, nonprofit uh, was to not only encourage young women and men, you know, high schoolers, I don't kind of, you know, uh, separate them. I encourage anybody. But once women come into our workforce, um, we have policies. Uh, every company has this, oh, you know, we have to keep women and, you know, just we don't walk the talk, right? Mm -hmm. So this has to trickle down to the project managers and the management so that they are the implementers. But in America, that's not happening, right? So my my nonprofit is is a way to advocate how to um, kind of retain 
uh, and progress these women uh, down the pipeline. Otherwise, once you go to the board level or the level that, you know, that real decision making happening, you have, you know, less than 20% women. Right. So how do you, yeah, how do you that uh, kind of balance STEM communities, you know, whatever the projects uh, that we create, it's for both men and women, right? It's for us. So how do you create projects with just 20% women or minority involvement, right? That's that's my goal. So my, my nonprofit is to kind of make sure that, you know, we have um, uh, women and the minority, uh, you know, take part in, in this design and development. Not only that, that we retain them um, and and they become part of the the new technology. Man, that is so cool. That is so cool. I'm so glad you had this vehicle to, to give back and help people who are interested in this and may not have their eyes or minds open to what is possible to, to get there. So that um, I'm very, very happy that's going so well. Um, so as the final part of our interview, Melanie, I'd love to ask some rapid fire questions. And okay. again, these are questions that we've asked all the guests that we've had on the show and um, get some really cool insights. So um, my first question is, is there a purchase of $100 or less that has most improved your life in the past six months to a year? Okay. Um, so let me, so I have two things. It's, I have two things that I wanted to, you know, talk about uh, that um, it's not purchase. It's just an investment. Okay. Right. Perfect. Uh, um, last year, um, during summertime, I decided to apply for an MBA. And um, so I have realized, you know, I if I want to empower uh, women around me, I cannot be in that group and holding signs and, you know, marching and, you know, empowering them. I have to be, I have to have a quantum leap in my career. So I place myself at a table, at the table where the decisions are made. So the, that was the reason I decided to, you know, apply for MBA. So I chose four schools. And uh, so uh, to applying to MBA, it's about like 100 to $200. But I chose four schools. And I thought either one of those four schools, first one, whoever comes back and say, yes, I would take. Right. Um, so, so I chose uh, Judge, Cambridge, UK. And then um, Harvard, Stanford, and uh, uh, what else? I think three schools. Okay, so I so when when I was writing my personal statements, that's when I learned, you know, those the MBA, um, you know, uh, process, you know, application process is very rigorous. Mm-hmm. So they ask a lot of, lot of questions that gives a lot of insight to who you are. So that means you have to be very truthful to yourself and you have to be very open when you're writing those statements. And, you know, for two, for two months, I was writing and rewriting those statements and then made me realize, wow, the amount of work and the road path and my background has you know, it's like a self-reflection. We often don't do that. Right. Right. Sometimes you have to self-reflect of who, what your life journey has been. And and it 
opened my eyes to do much bigger, better things for myself and for people around me. So, you know, to answer your question, yes, I spent for that application, mm-hmm. you know, a few hundred dollars, but also it really taught me who I am and who I was and the adversities and and how I have impacted uh, people around me and how I have made myself better. And then I realized, I need. I cannot stop here, right? My my two children, my daughter went to college this January, and everybody say, "Oh, you know, you're empty nesters. Both your children are gone, right? You should be traveling world, relaxing." No, the 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 personal statements really taught me that I I have, you know, my best years are yet to come. Uh-huh. So I, I realized that's like one of the worthwhile investments for me um, to, you know, write those personal statements in these three colleges. Right? That's amazing. That's so yeah. cool. And the other thing is just that I, I love dogs so much. My husband does not like dogs. For for so many years, we debated on that. And one some at least once he slept on the couch because I was upset. <laughs> and but but three years ago, he just walked in with a puppy. And I think every you know I you know my my very tough career, very demanding career, and the children, and you know uh, living alone as a family here, um, people think it's too much to have a pet who you have to take care of another person. But I have to tell like every professional should have a dog, right? They, they are going to make your day so much better. Um, and I, I think that's like the best investment. I did it for myself. My husband did it for myself. Uh, <laughs> it's just having this pet around you, just diffuse your stress sure. um, and, and that you look forward. And I mean, if everybody's, not everybody's angry with you at least the dog will come running (laughs) the dog will always be your friend right? yeah yeah so those are the two investments i can think of that you know just made my life so much better those are great great answers thank you for that um my, my next question for you melanie is you've talked a lot about you know you inspiring the next generation of people who are interested in stem and look up to you but as you were young and going through your career early on was there anyone uh, of south asian descent that you looked up to that said wow this is the person i'd like to be like or you uh you, you aspire to be like someone who or who, who someone who really inspired you is is anyone come to mind who uh, you looked up to okay so um i have to tell you this samir so when I, um, my, my childhood was very, very simple, right? Even like uh, I w- did not have access to libraries. Um, so um, to answer your question, um, I did not know of anybody uh, that inspired me when I was young, only because I did not have access to information. So um, somebody asked me, um, I think during that interview on the refinery in 21, um, 29, she asked me, um, did you ever know that you wanted to become aerospace engineer? And I told her, um, you can never dream about things that you don't know. Uh, for me, um, I was inspired by the leaders. Uh, there were uh, fantastic leaders in Sri Lanka. Um, I always saw myself as a leader, Dudley Senanayaka and, you know, Lakshman Khadiragama, you know, there and, and all those leaders that I looked up to, 
um, they were well educated. And um, so I, I, I think me wanting to go educate myself in later years uh, was my inspiration coming from, you know, some of the political leaders that I had access to information. They were the ones kind of, you know, kind of guided me to who I am, but not any astronauts or engineers or it just I did not have any information. You know, I was not had, didn't have access to information. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Um, well, hey, you are now in are we, so many uh, little girls and guys who are growing up in Sri Lanka or around the world are probably listening to this story or reading about it and be like, hey, I can do this now. So yeah. that's okay. so cool that now we can pay it forward. Um, another question for you, Melanie, is um, you mentioned um, you, you have some ideas on books or movies. Is there a book or movie that you would recommend to the audience or has the most impact on you or who has that has inspired you that you can share? Um, you know, I mean, I, I have read a couple of books recently and, you know, I, um, one book was recommended by one of my mentors at, um, JPL. Um, you know, one thing though I want to emphasize to the listeners too, um, no matter what your profession is, have mentors. Wherever you work, people who have been in the company for many years, uh, have one of them as, you know, maybe um, you know, as mentors, um, officially or non-officially. So you have somebody to go talk to without, uh, you know, you having to talk to your manager all the time. So because that has implications of your reviews and, you know, work, you know, work reviews and stuff. So have a mentor outside of industry, outside of company or maybe industry, have mentors. So one of the mentors, he was listening to my story um, and he said, you know what, I want you to uh, read this book. It's it's, um, called Decision Traps by Edward Russo. Right. So, um, so I asked him, um, I'm always challenging people and I was very close to him. I was like, you are asking, you're trying to teach me how to, you know, make decisions by telling me to read a book <laughs> that has decision traps. Yeah, yeah. So I was very skeptical about it. And so he said, okay, if, if you don't like it, you just read one or two chapters. If you don't like it, then go and read Farsighted by Stephen Johnson, right? So I read a little bit of Farsighted, but I love decision traps. Uh, you know, uh, it, it talks about like, you know, 10 traps that, you know, popular, you know, leaders make, right? And then sometimes it's okay to learn from other people's mistakes. So this book is basically talking about um, other people's mistakes, common mistakes, right? And also this book is about 20 years old and you would think, oh, this is out of date, right? But it it's based on this human cognition, right? You know, your intuition. So your, you know, your human cognition and intuition is very slow to change. If you look at technology, everything changes very rapidly, but human cognition and that, you know, your instinct, changes over the years very slowly. So I think this book is very kind of still relevant um, if listeners want to talk about, you know, you know, know about, you know, how to, you know, uh, t- talk about group thinking and then you know, pretty much taking uh, good decisions as a leader. 
Perfect. That's two great recommendations. We'll definitely make sure we include that uh, in the show notes. Uh, decision turns and farsighted. Yeah. Um, wonderful. So, Melanie, I would love to end this on, do you have any final ask for the audience? Anything you'd like to leave them with? Um, so, knowing that this most of your audience is South Asian, um, I'm, I'm guessing your audience is mostly South Asian, Correct. Samir? Correct. Yeah. So um, coming from that and, you know, our cultures and, and how you kind of keep your authentic self and that we still be successful. Right. Um, I, I really like I, I see all uh, different two, two, two types of, uh, you know, Asian community in America where they completely change their identity, who they are, where they're coming from and completely embrace American culture. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. But also there is a segment of people just like myself, right, uh, who uh, keep our authentic Asian self and take good values from American culture or the Western culture. Uh, uh, you know, our culture, we, we have nothing to be shy of who we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a very um, rich culture. Right. And we our culture is uh, central around family and friends and you know our communities you know we should we should always uh, you know be value that you always value that how much successful you are how much you get sucked into this you know um western culture uh, just just keep your traditions who we are it's very authentic and that as an immigrant that's a it's a huge plus point you know, don't think being an immigrant uh, living in a, in a Western culture is a disadvantage. Take it as advantage because you, you are at the end of the day, how you impact your community is what is going to matter. You know, whatever your job title, the, the great work you do, all that will be forgotten. But at the end of the day, what will be remembered is like who you are and how you impact your community and culture. Yep. That's wonderful. That is so wonderful, Melanie. Thank you so much. That is such a great piece of advice. And man, this interview is just chock full of so many good things. I can't wait for people to listen to it and, and, and hear your story and, and what advice you have. Um, okay. Where where can people find you? If people are interested in learning more and getting in touch, what's the best people to? What's the best way people can can reach out to you? Okay, um, so I can give um, you know my Facebook up was very very personal. Um, but I have two websites for my um, nonprofit, I Stem Without Borders. Um, that's uh, I have the Facebook page, and then I have my Instagram account, and then I have my LinkedIn account. And then uh, my email, I can give anybody who wants to reach out for any more advice. That's Melanie, M-E-L-O-N-Y dot NASA, N-A-S-A, at gmail.com. Perfect. So, yeah, anybody can reach out to me and then I'll be happy to answer their questions. Awesome. So, again, we'll we'll link all this uh, when we publish the episode. Well, um, Melanie, thank you so, so much for for being on South Asian Stories. We truly appreciate it. Again, this has been one of our our best interviews, one of my favorite interviews so far. So, thank you again for the time. Thank you, Samir. It was a pleasure talking to you. Have a good day. All right. Bye. Hey guys, it's Samir again. 
If you'd like to hear more amazing stories on South Asians around the world, please check out SouthAsianStoriesPodcast.com and subscribe to our email list. That's SouthAsianStoriesPodcast.com. Thanks a lot and see you next time.